This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of But God Can, How to Stop Striving and Live Purposefully and Abundantly, written and narrated by Becky Kaiser and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. And now, Christ and Pop Culture presents Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson. Hello, everyone. I'm Erin Straza, and with me is Hannah Anderson. We're your hosts for Persuasion, the place where fine ladies, rational minds, and the best kind of company gather to discuss all sorts of ideas and issues. This episode of Persuasion is sponsored in part by B&H Publishing Group, publisher of Frankenstein, a guide to reading and reflecting. Visit bhpublishinggroup.com to get your copy and to see all the other classics in the series. Thanks for joining today's conversation of persuasion. We're digging into our fall series called What We Make of Ourselves. Each week, we are working our way through Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, and we're identifying how the themes of this 19th century classic have a whole bunch to say to us about living life in the 21st century. Hannah, I have so enjoyed reading this book. I feel like I'm bouncing all around history. And interestingly enough, I see pieces of it applying to everything I see and talk about and read. And one of the things that was most interesting is I rewatched Hamilton and I could even see themes applying to Hamilton. Can you believe it? Well, it is the kind of thing that once you see something, you see it everywhere. Right. Right. And, but and who would have thought who Hamilton would have thought? and Frankenstein go together? <laughs> it's interesting because um you know, it, I've enjoyed reading it a great deal, too. But to your point, it's like, oh, my word, this is so relevant. This is everywhere. This is all the time. And then it's like, wait a minute, has it always been all the time? And I think that's part of what, you know, obviously makes a classic book is that these themes existed before Mary Shelley put them in Frankenstein. They were things that people have been wrestling with forever. And even though the story of Alexander Hamilton, you know, predates um, Frankenstein by maybe what, 60, 60 years? Yeah, maybe? about that. Yeah. Um, it It's just these questions that we're asking about life, or maybe we should be asking, you know, not everyone asks them. Um, but well, yeah, I, I and, totally and knowing, get that connection. I'm well, feeling and knowing you. that Hamilton, the the Broadway musical was written, obviously, in modern times, just written years ago. So I, that maybe have may have some to do with it, where these themes are coming through in what Lin-Manuel Miranda saw as he was reading about the life of Hamilton, and then he's drawing these themes forward. So maybe there's some of that. But some of the things that I was seeing in Hamilton, there were all these questions being raised about who's telling your story. And here we have Frankenstein, where it's story upon story, letters within letters, all that nesting frame. And then also talking so much about the things that we create. Um, Hamilton was 
prolific in his writing and his ideas and structure for the a whole country. He created a whole, you know, the systems of our country. And so there were so many things that I saw there that relate to this. And what do we do with the works of our hands? As well as the basic question we're asking of what do we make of ourselves? I mean, the whole the whole question underneath Hamilton's personal story was coming up out of really difficult circumstances and kind of climbing his way into society and trying to make something of himself. At the same time that he's trying to do that, meeting some opposition from the society around him. So there's this interesting interplay between you can be busy trying to achieve something or make something of yourself, but it's not just about what you do. It's about the kind of people around you and the groups around you and trying to make that connection between your own personal struggle and the society. When I think about these connections that we have with others and how there's kind of like this this pull-push feeling of what my ideas are versus what your ideas are in society and personal life. And it is amazing that all of this kind of mixes up together and helps us become who we are, helps us be who we are, but it also can limit in ways who we are and what we can do. And we have to recognize all of that, that we aren't able to be everything we want to be, but maybe that's sometimes a good thing. Um, Maybe we are being held back in some ways, and sometimes that's good, and sometimes that's bad, because we need to be kept in check sometimes. And there are other times where it's very frustrating when you feel held back because of society or others and their opinions. And I think it's particularly relevant in this moment um, with COVID, because the central question that we're all dealing with is, what is the relationship of the individual to the group? How does my existence, my individual choices, my personal freedom, my liberty to make the choices I want to make play out in context of this group dynamic? And like there is this sense in which it's not just the group or the, the family or the system or whatever society is. It's not like it's just the the combination of all the individual pieces that you just add them up and that's what society is there is a unique interplay that happens between the individuals that almost creates something completely different than you alone and I think that's what this reading is really highlighting that there's something that happens when the individual is in relationship with others and it can be positive it can be really helpful as we'll see in some respects in this reading but also, it can be really damaging if you have negative relationships or negative experiences with the group around you. It can push you back out into further isolation. So today, we're really going to dig into what are we to make of others? What do we make of our individual relationship to others and to the society and to the community at large? Well, there is so much here for us to dig into. Hannah, why don't you go ahead and do the the reading recap, and we'll just give everyone a bit of a summary of what's going on in this reading. Right now, you'll remember when we last left our hero, Victor was a soppy mess, on his bed, guilt-ridden and hopeless. Um, He did have a little bit of a 
reprieve knowing that Justine, while she had died, um, she was at rest. This is how he opens this next section. We're, we're moving into volume two and the readings for this time are volume two, chapters one through four. And he kind of opens this section with, you know, it's really sad that Justine died, but she's at rest and I am alive and I am dealing with all of my angst. And so like, poor thing. Oh, well, poor let's thing. move on. <laughs> poor thing. So he's continuing on in this guilty, hope, guilty, hopeless state of mind. Um, he knows his creature is at large. He knows he's responsible for the death of his brother and of Justine directly. And he's just a mess. And his father begins to worry for him and even kind of push him a little bit. Like, what's going on here? Can you maybe get it together? Because we're all sad. Elizabeth is despondent. We're all depressed. Um, and they don't quite know what to do. So the father comes up with the idea, hey, let's take a trip. Because when you're sad, that's what you do. Exactly. You travel. Travel brings happiness to me. I don't know. Right. I fully understand this. So they go on a trip to the French Alps, um, Chamonix region. And it's these beautiful passages that Shelley is explaining just how beautiful this scenery is and this change of scenery. And that kind of signals this larger motif that she's working with, um, how nature is either a signal for goodness and hope if it's in this beautiful place or for isolation. Because this area also, because it's the Alps, had high peaks and there was a lot of ice and glacial formations. And that's going to come up later. So if you're reading along, make sure you look for that. So they go off to, um, you know, the countryside to try to recover themselves. And there's this bit of recovery. Um, Victor kind of breathes a little more easily. And there's this comment in chapter two pretty early on. Um, I think Elizabeth or he's seeing the difference that when you're happy, you know, you diffuse that happiness to others. And when you're sad, you diffuse that sadness to others. And so there's this underlying question even here that isn't resolved. But what uh, responsibility do we have to others, even in our emotions? Um, I appreciate that interconnectedness, just seeing, oh, the question of we are in this together. Everybody's grieving, but how I grieve affects how you grieve. So right. interesting. So what should have been a really healthy, restorative trip to the French Alps, as they are, suddenly takes a turn. Victor is out hiking and he's enjoying nature when he sees this figure of a man from a distance leaping across the glacial ice. And suddenly you know it's his creature. His creature is there and he's going to have to face him. And um, this, they do, they encounter each other and they have this showdown. And it's fascinating because this is the first actual conversation that Victor has had with his creation after years, maybe two years, maybe, I'm not sure the timeline at this point, but it's years. And the first thing he does is reject him and say, be gone, you know, get out, get away from me. And it's very formal. Very, very <laughs> formal. Like, hello, I created you. Stay be away gone. from me. <laughs> um, and what's interesting is the creature says, I expected this reception. I thought this is exactly what was going to happen. Um, I knew you would reject me. 
because that's all I've experienced for other people for the last two years. And he begins to tell his story. He, he tells Victor, like they're out in the French Alps and they're like, hey, let's sit down and have a chat. And the creature is going to tell his story. And so again, we're signaling that frame novel where um, it's a story within a story within a story. And at this point, the creature is telling Robert, I mean, is telling Victor his story, who then is relaying it to Robert, who is then relaying it to Margaret. So the creature begins to tell his story. And he begins with his earliest self-awareness. He says, I don't remember a whole lot of the early days, but um, he he didn't even know Victor had created him at first. But he's, he comes into awareness, into, into consciousness, and he be- starts to become self-aware. And he somehow learns to survive. He learns how to live, how to get food. At one point, he discovers fire, which is a great little parallel to... Um, Shelley's subtitle of the modern day Prometheus because of that motif with Prometheus taking fire from the gods. But there's this strange thing as you're reading through it, his development really parallels the development of a child. He's, he's coming into learning about his sensations and his emotions and his feelings. And, and what's interesting is like he really is this abandoned baby, quote unquote. Um, and, you know, I couldn't help but read that and think, wonder what would have happened if Victor had stayed to care for him. Yeah. Like somebody needed to teach this creature how to live. Right. Because even though it's in the form of a man, mentally, it's not an adult, it's not an adult, which it's so fascinating to me because, I mean, you assume, oh, you're this being that <laughs> is full stature. So you must have grown up. But. He didn't grow up. He was just kind of put together as that size. That doesn't mean mentally and emotionally he's able to survive. Yeah, and Shelley's making some really interesting allusions here even to the creation narrative of Adam being created as a man rather than a a child and coming into consciousness and responsibility and what responsibility does the creator have to his creation. Um, But... The, the creature is just stumbling his way through life. And because of that, he doesn't even know what he looks like or how his appearance, um, how other people see him. And so if you remember early on in the book, I mean, Victor just kind of put together, put him together from corpses. So he's like not the most attractive of being. And he has a very grotesque appearance. And so when he finally decides to come into like, societies or communities people are frightened of him and violent toward him and he makes the creature makes the point that this kind of misery he says misery made me a fiend it was this kind of he's attributing this kind of rejection from society this violence toward him as the source of his own violence um, and his own kind of responsibility responsive hatred but he also says this to victor because he's telling victor this story for a reason this is when you begin to realize that he's not just like having a confessional like he's got something that he wants from this and he tells victor if you make me happy i will be virtuous again so this rejection from society has made me terrible but if you make me happy and you please me then i'll be good again and that, of course, just sent off 
red flags and signals and bells to me because that's really a kind of an abuse tactic where you made me do this. You upset me, and this is the response that ca- happened. But if yeah, you no just... personal agency whatsoever, right? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's an not interesting... my choice. You you need to do this for me. <laughs> it's an interesting question. How does the treatment we receive from others, but does it validate our responses or not? But so he is rejected by society. He goes off to the woods, and he lives there, and he's able to get by. And then he stumbles across a cottage. And there's a a family unit in the cottage, and he begins to observe them. And suddenly, he's beginning to see the kinds of relationships and connections that he would long for. And as we enter chapter four, he's watching these people. He, He calls them his friends. He calls, he's observing his friends, and he feels a connection to them. But he never introduces himself. He never goes up close to them. And it's a it's the DeLacy family, and it's a family unit made of a, a daughter and a son and a father who is blind. And that's important, so hang on to that for later. But what he's watching, really, is people living peacefully in a group. He's watching civilization, and he's trying to find out what makes this work from them. And so he's observing them, and he learns from them. He learns their gentleness and their care for each other, and he's really moved by that. He even learns their language. He learns, I think he calls it the science of letters and words or something to that effect. And so he is gaining not just understanding of civilization. He's learning to read. He's learning their language. And he feels this really strong connection. And maybe for the first time in his life, there's this possibility of relationship. It's like they become his pseudo parents, even though they don't know it. It's like, but they're training him and he's observing their ways. And because they're a delightful family, so it seems. And it starts to bring out goodness in him. Yeah, yeah. He starts to do things for them anonymously, like gathering wood and leaving it by their doorstep or or bringing them things. And so Mm -hmm. as this reading ends, we, we end with this really optimistic and hopeful and again nature is reflecting this because it's coming into the springtime and the creature has seen a different way of being with people and he wants that and and we have this sense of hope well maybe maybe it's possible maybe he can move into life with people and be healed from his previous rejection This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At BOW, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies 
at beyondordinarywomen.org. Hannah, the, the end of that chapter four was just so beautifully written. There was this brightness, this sense of hope that really I felt like it was a little bit of a reprieve in the novel because it has been heavy and it has been a, a wrestle of a book to get through because of the sorrow and the suffering and the grieving. And so this little bit, this little bright spot where the creature is thinking that maybe he could live in community, maybe he could be connected to this family who is relating kindly to each other and caring for each other. I loved that little bright spot, and it did make me think through how is it that my relationship with others is being projected to the world? Like, is is there that care factor? And then how do we care for each other just as connected beings in society? So it raised all sorts of questions about caring and, and the hopeful side, even though I know we kind of got to dig into some of the dark stuff too. But first of all, that, that caring and hopeful side, I thought that was really sweet. Yeah, and I thought this section really brought a couple of the themes to the forefront. Now, as we've said before, these themes run the length of the book. So you're going to find them anywhere in the book. But in this section particularly, we're asking questions about nature and nurture. Um, How are we formed by ourselves intrinsically versus the communities around us? What would a good community bring out of us? Because what you see coming out of the creature at this section when he's observing the delays is he sees their goodness and that starts to bring goodness out of him. But that's in contrast to the kind of rejection he experienced um, of the civil the societies and the towns that he went into previously that were destructive and violent toward him and brought violence out of him. So there's that question. There's also the question of what do we have, what responsibility do we have to each other? Um, Like when we literally make others, not just what do we make of others, but when we make others, um, as Victor did, what responsibility did he have to his creation? And abandoning that responsibility, did he become, was it true what he thought? that he was responsible for all the bad things that this being now did because he really had left him to fend on his own. Um, and it didn't go so well. No. I mean, in in the simplest sense, we could think of it as obviously we have responsibility to the children that we birth. But there are more things that we create and birth besides other humans. There are systems that we create. There is work that we create. There are um, good, like, deeds and actions that build society. All these things that we are creating, and they affect other people for good. Hopefully they inspire people toward good. But there are also things that we create that aren't so good. And what do we do with that? What do we do with the things that we create that aren't going well. Right. Can we just say, well, that's not what I intended. Right. Like, can, can we do create that? a system that has inherent flaws in it? And when it starts to spiral out of control, we say, well, that's not what I meant. And, you know, I'm not responsible for that now. Um, you know, there, that's a really important uh, question, even for artifacts. When people begin to use your work a certain way, 
Um, I, I don't think you're responsible for how they use it, but you might be responsible to speak up and say that's not what it means or that's not what it's intended for to speak against the misuse of it. I do think you have a responsibility in that respect. Um, but another question uh, really that came to my mind was, and this was toward the end, what allows people to live peacefully with each other? What allows us, not just who we become as individuals, but what is the necessary glue that allows a family to live together, the Delacy's? What allows a society to live at peace with each other? And where does the point of conflict come from when the creature shows up and somehow he's not allowed to be in that group? And and there were some really beautiful things we saw, especially in the Lacey family, this kind of mutual care for each other. And it, it reminded me of this anecdote I'd heard about Margaret Mead, who was a cultural anthropologist. And they asked, someone asked her, um, what was the first sign of human civilization? What was the first thing that you have seen historically in ancient cultures that said, this is when human civilization is emerging? And they were expecting, like, well, I found this artifact or I found this tool. And Mead said it was a femur or a thigh bone, a human femur that had been broken and then healed. And her point was that civilization offers mutual care in a way that the animal kingdom doesn't. And what differentiates like a pack or a herd from human civilization and society is that human beings at their best should care for each other and will care for each other and will care for the weak. And if a person breaks their leg, they're not just cast off to the side. Um, They're not killed or left for dead. They are brought along with the group until they heal. Um, And so there's, there's a disposition toward the weak and that's the marker of civilization. And that's the marker of civilization. I love that picture. I love that there's this sense that it's not about the the strong surviving, but it's about the strong caring for the weak so that everyone survives and flourishes. I love that aspect. And I think that it it tells us something deeper about what's most important, and that is our um, willingness to sacrifice and to care for others rather than um, being set on self and making sure that as long as number one is taken care of, then who cares what happens to everybody else? So I think it's that attitude. Um, It is that disposition. Like you said, there's this sense of I have something greater to do than just care about me. It's about us. I love that. And I think it's particularly interesting that within the book, the creature is put forward as this physically strong individual and yet very vulnerable and weak in other ways, Uh, lacking awareness, lacking the ability to to know how to move about in society. Even the grotesqueness of his figure is in itself a, uh, a weakness because it sets people against him from the forefront. And it just got me to thinking like how easily, n- number one, that's not how we 
platform societies, really. Like, we don't look out for the weak. And how often we misunderstand what weakness is. And we expect strength from people because we're like, you're strong. You should be okay. Um, and how inverted that is. And, and when we want to form society, even within our Christian spaces, we tend to be very tribal and we tend to gravitate around strength and, you know, to cut others out. Yes, Yes. I mean, that gets into the whole thing of who's in, who's out, cancel culture, all of that, where we decide if you are being strong or weak in a certain way, that's not acceptable. We'll just shun you, which is what the creature was experiencing. He experienced that rejection and shunning. And really, for him, he didn't realize what he was doing or how he was carrying himself wasn't proper or appropriate for what that society had agreed upon as far as social interactions. And so, yes, we do that same thing where we we have an agreed upon way of proper social interaction. And if you go outside of those norms, we say, oh, no, you're out. But is there a better way? Is there a better way where we say, hey, that's not acceptable, but here's why, and then bring that person along to be part of the group. Mm. Is there a way for us to do that? Well, yeah, I mean, I I struggle with this because sometimes I'll watch what we're doing, especially in the church, and I'm like, yeah, that's the way humans are. Like, I don't expect more from you because we're all human beings and this is our base nature. And yes, we're supposed to be overcoming this. Um I also get a little frustrated, too, when, when people will be rejected and then maybe use that rejection for their own rejection of other people. Because, I mean, that's something that happens here where the, the creature is like, well, I was rejected, therefore I am now justified in rejecting them. I'm going to reject you before you reject me. And, and the backdrop to all of this which I think is just masterful, are these glacial peaks, this barren, lonely, icy environment. Uh And that's where this conversation between Victor and the creature he has made is taking place. And even though they're in conversation with each other, they are massively isolated individuals because in part of their own choices. And, and I'm not saying you downplay the harm that a community has done to you. In no way am I suggesting that. Um, there was very real harm in rejection that the creature experienced. Um, but at some point, that turns where you embrace the rejection and you live in that. And I think both Victor and the creature are happily shouldering their isolation. Yeah, they um. both are isolated in their own way because of because of this creation, because of the creator, because of the created. They both are isolated and unable to let people close or or to learn from maybe those errors, misjudgments, wrong actions, so that they could um, become part of community again. And and that goes back to what Shelley said was the purpose 
of her book. In the preface, remember, she's like, don't read into this. Don't think this is all everything that I say is. But here is what I want you to take away. I want you to take away the amiableness of domestic affection and to exhibit the excellence of universal virtue. And so there's something, and and this is almost, we're not quite, I think we're at the center of the novel, close, we're coming close to it. And she is presenting this vision of, here's what happened when society gets it wrong. Yes. Something I have to remember as I'm reading through this is that this is fiction. It is a novel, and it is raising more questions than it's answering. And it's not meant to be prescriptive, like, oh, now we go do this thing. But it does raise up all these questions. I mean, we've had so many questions today about how do we interact and how do we relate? And is it nature? Is it nurture? Is it both? What are, what are we making with society? All these things are brought to the forefront in this book. And it is not pretty. I mean, the the creature is not attractive and the human heart is often not attractive and what we create. And Victor is certainly oh not attractive. Oh, my goodness. It's I, won't, I don't want listeners in any way to think I am prejudging him. <laughs> I am post-judging him. I have read what he has done. <laughs> and he's out. He's out. <laughs> well, I... He's going to have to do something to redeem himself, I got to say. Well, let's hope. We're, we're going to see as we go, But right? I do think, you know, you're right about she's raising the questions. She is hinting toward answers, but again, they may not be the answers um, that we as Christians arrive at. I I loved at this point, though, despite all the darkness, she was casting a vision of possibility. And she was preserving, the, the DeLacy family was preserving this, this is what we're working for. This is what we're working to. And how we go about doing that, there's going to be a lot of brokenness around that. But I think um, to your question earlier of what is the better way, and I really do think it it does lie in this, that the, the purpose of the community, of the society, of the group, is to welcome the outsider. It's to welcome the stranger, the weak, to, to create a space of safety and care for those who have broken femurs, metaphorically. And that there's a sense in which the, the community and the society, self-preservation, actually is an, the antithesis of civilization and society. And the degree to which self-preservation becomes the dominant norm is the degree to which your society will begin to collapse. And I think we are absolutely seeing that in the world around us and in our own communities, that as soon as that fear of the other, that self-preservation becomes the dominant response, you very quickly become inhumane. Mm-hmm. Yes, the as we worked through the titling when we said what we make of others, all, that's all I kept thinking was we we want to other everyone else and center ourselves and um, decide who's in, who's out, and the others are definitely out. Um, and 
as much as I as I was reading through and seeing the two responses that the creature had between being rejected because that society was scared and frightened of him versus seeing this family care for each other, I want to be that family that is tender and cares for each other and presents picture of goodness and draws people toward goodness. But oh, boy, I felt convicted. Like, when have I responded out of fear and rejected people because I was scared of them or scared of what drawing them into my circle might mean? And so I feel like this book, it just does a really good job of holding up a mirror to the heart and and make you wrestle, which I've just really appreciated. Yes. And and the central question, I think, too, underneath all of this is what makes us human? You know, the the creature is wrestling with being not quite human. Is Victor achieving his full humanity? What does it mean to live into um, our humanity and to do humane things? And, you know, again, to the point of the other, we also want to say that being brought into the society doesn't mean you become not the other like you would retain the things that may like the the creature is going to retain his creatureliness but can the society have enough margin to say others in their different and i think ultimately if i'm if i'm actually really honest i'll be like you know no that's not possible like human society left to itself historically you know, just psychologically, that's not going to happen. And so I'm not surprised by the fragmentation in one sense, because even if this is the goal, human beings just can't do that. Um, But I do think there is a call for those of us who name the name of Christ to realize that this is a godlike thing and that moving in this direction through the power of the Holy Spirit through the power and the example of Christ is ultimately what we're called to. Yeah. It holds up the the vision and the hope and what is good to strive toward, even though achieving that large scale is not probably going to happen. I haven't seen <laughs> that that's going to happen, but it is something for us to be working toward because that is what's good and right. So. Yeah. Well, we would love to hear your reflections Mm -hmm. on this section of the reading. Um, It is very much finally getting into the creature's story and his relationship to others. What did it prompt for you? What feelings of rejections um, have you experienced? Or what warm and welcoming community has changed you? What group of people have brought you in and cared for you that then in many ways helped you become who God had created you to be. Join us um, on Twitter at Persuasion CAPC. Share with us what you're thinking, or you can join us in the Christ and Pop Culture Members Forum um, as we continue our discussions through Frankenstein. Persuasion is produced by Jonathan Clausen, and it's part of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Find all of our shows at ChristandPopCulture.com or search for them over in iTunes. Thanks so much to all of you for listening to Persuasion, and we will catch you next time. You have been listening to Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at Christandpopculture.com/network. 
Theme music by Maiden Name. This episode was brought to you in part by Wheaton College's MA in Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership, which prepares Christian professionals to serve others faithfully and excellently. Called to help people facing disasters, human trafficking, poverty, or displacement as refugees? Visit wheaton.edu/hdl.